Good evening. I am Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department, and it is my pleasure to introduce to you this evening Janice Faye Kearney, who is an author, lecturer, journalist, publisher, and a native of Gould, Arkansas. She has, she has had a very distinctive professional career from program manager for the state of Arkansas, the first and only female state president of the NAACP, co-publisher with her husband of the award-winning Arkansas State Press and author. She served as a presidential diarist to U.S. President Bill Clinton from 1995 to 2001. Hers was the first such appointment in presidential history. Her first book, Cotton Field of Dreams, was published in 1977 and based on her father's life story. In 2008, she published her first novel, Once Upon a Time There Was a Girl, A Murder at Mobile Bay. This evening, we are pleased to have her to discuss her book, Daisy, Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Please join me in welcoming Janice Kearney to Baltimore and to the Pratt Library. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. It is my distinct honor to be here, to have been invited here today, tonight, and uh, I was a little skeptical of whether I was going to make it, <laughs> but I was so happy that I did. I'm very happy that I did. I want to thank uh, the Enoch Pratt Library and Vivian and Teresa, and please give my thanks to Judy. Uh, I really appreciate this opportunity. I've heard so much about this library, its history, um, all the wonderful authors and writers and literary artists that you bring here, which is wonderful for this community. So it, it gives me a great honor to be included in that. I'm going to talk tonight about uh, Daisy Gatson Bates, and I want to start out by, by asking who of you know anything about Daisy Bates? Great. Okay, good, good, good. Wonderful. So those of you who don't, you'll learn a little bit tonight about a really amazing woman, and she happens to be from Arkansas. I'm always happy to make presentations during Black History Month, but as we all know, great things happen every day of the year. And people like Daisy Bates make things happen every month of the year. Uh, so I try to keep her name out there all year. But I'm happy to be here during Black History Month to talk about her. When we think about the civil rights struggle and about Daisy Bates, I don't have to tell you about the role that black newspapers played in the civil rights struggle. I think a lot of people forget that that black newspapers papers were extremely important to the struggle. They were actually the mouthpiece of the struggle. That's how everyday people in the communities knew what was going on. So African-American newspapers over the centuries were powerful, powerful conduits of news. And Daisy and Elsie Bates started, founded their newspaper back in 1941. 
and that was a very important time for black newspapers because that was a time when there was the first, you know, starting up the discussion about civil rights and starting to make things equal between the races. Um, and you guys have a very, very popular, famous newspaper right here. And um, I know that they came to Arkansas during the 1957 Central High Crisis, and they were one of the newspapers that helped spread the word about what was going on with the 1957 Central High Crisis. And I know they were very good friends with Daisy Bate. Uh, Baltimore Sun, is that it? Yeah, they... Afro-American. Afro-American, okay. Uh, there's a family. A fam- Murphy. Murphy family, yeah. Um, so they were very good friends with Daisy and Elsie Bates. So I want to thank them, along with Arkansas State Press, for the role that they played in the civil rights effort. But I want to talk about Daisy Bates tonight, and I'll start by saying that this amazing woman was not only someone that I looked up to, as a hero and a a great leader, but she was also a personal friend of mine and a mentor. And she was someone that I tried to emulate in some ways throughout my life. Um, And though she was my hero, she was also a very down-to-earth woman. She was also a very simple woman, a very direct person, and a very complicated human being. Um, So one of the things about my writing is that when I see all of that put together, I want to know what was it that made someone like Daisy Bates who they are or who they became. And uh, a lot of times it's, it's not one thing, but it is their foundation. It's always their foundation. So you always have to go back, you know, back when they were children, what happened to them, what happened to them as a, you know, as a family member. And that, if you can study that or analyze that or research that, you can always come up with usually the reasons that people turn out the way they do. One of my themes as I talk about Daisy is the fact that she and her husband, Elsie Bates, sacrificed so much to lead and to change, to make the world a better, cha- better place. But Daisy was never recognized by the civil rights leader, leaders of that time. And I don't think I'm sharing any secrets that during the civil rights era that it was a male-dominated leadership. And people like Daisy Bates, people like Diane Nash, people like Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, Merrily Evers, Rosa Parks, They played an important role, but they were never given the kind of acknowledgement, the kind of honor that they deserved. So it is left to people like us who can still toot their horns for them to do just that. Because many times they worked out front, many times they worked in the back, many times they worked besides those leaders that we know so well. So they really deserve a lot of that credit. Um, so Daisy Bates and her husband left a great legacy, and I take every opportunity I can to share that legacy with the world. And I feel like that's the least that I can do, um, because she gave so much. And 
while I'll only have time to give you just a brief overview of her life, her amazing life, I want to talk a little bit about my research, how I, how I came to write Daisy's story, um, and I do have copies of my book, so you can read more about it, but I'll tell you a little bit about it. I began writing this book in earnest about 10 years ago, and it was truly a labor of love because this is someone that I had known for many years, not very well, but I knew her. And I knew that she had a rich history because my father, who, was, who loved history, had shared that with me. Uh, I knew that she had lived a purposeful life, that she had given her life to something. Uh, you know, we're, we, we are taught to... Re- we are... <laughs> We're always taught to respect elders, and we do. It's important that we do. But it's also important for us to learn as much as we can about the people that came before us. What were their sacrifices? What kinds of contributions did they make? And my father, thankfully, shared that. So after my research on my book for Daisy, I came away with the realization that if you take away the people that she grew up around, right around, which I'll get to a little bit later, the one most important person in her life was L.C. Bates. And you never hear much about L.C. Bates either. That was her husband, and he purposely took a back seat and let Daisy Bates shine to the point that she did, Um, because he believed that she could get the message over a little better than him. He was a writer. He was the newspaper editor, and he did a magnificent job of that. Daisy was the spokesperson. She was the personality. So they had a wonderful, wonderful symbiotic relationship. I was blessed to have access to Daisy for a number of years after I became an adult, But I first met Daisy Bates when I was 16 years old, and I was still living in Gould, Arkansas. I was still, my parents were sharecroppers. You guys up in Baltimore probably don't even know what sharecroppers are. (laughs) We raised cotton. We raised cotton. We, um, We planted it. We tilled it, which means we chopped it. Uh, We picked cotton in the fall, so we were cotton sharecroppers, and that was our life. Our lives were, were pretty much centered around the cotton. So when I was 16 years old, my father and my mother were good enough to say, okay, we're not going to make you chop cotton this summer. You can go and see if you can get a job with Daisy Bates. Daisy Bates needs a summer worker. So I went to Mitchellville, that's where she was living at the time, and um, applied for a job with Daisy Bates. And Daisy Bates did not give me the job because I could not type very well. So I never saw Daisy Bates again until I was in my 30s. And she had reopened her newspaper, which had closed in 1959, because of her role and her husband's role in the 1957 Central High Crisis. All of the white business owners pulled their advertisements from their newspapers and they had to close it. So one of the things they always said that they 
they really wanted to reopen their newspaper one day. Unfortunately, L.C. Bates had died by the time that Daisy was able to do it, but in 1984, she reopened the newspaper. In 1987, she was in need of a managing editor. And I went to her and I reminded her that she had not given me that job when I was 16 years old and I was in need of a job and she gave it to me. So I became her managing editor in 1987 and I worked for her for three months before she retired. And when she retired, I purchased her newspaper. So I was the newspaper publisher of Arkansas State Press newspaper until uh, 1992. So I was blessed to have every day uh, for most of those five years access to Daisy Bates. She would come in, she became our advisor, and she would come in and share all of her own experiences with us. And uh, I was able to learn a lot more about her, and that was just a great, great opportunity for me. Um, I think she felt sorry for me more than anything because I was just about in tears when I learned that she was going to close the newspaper. Um, so this great woman who I idolized so very much uh, in time became my friend and my mentor. And at that time, I think I knew that I wanted to write a book about her but I didn't start writing the book until much, much later. I did many things. I tell people my life has gone in a really crooked path. I've not done one straight thing, except writing has always been something that I've done, but I've done many other things. So uh, I didn't start wor working on her paper for her book for a while. Uh, most of my research was done in Arkansas. The University of Arkansas has a collection of her papers. Um, so I did a lot of my research there. I did some research also in Wisconsin. They have a lot of her earliest papers um, at the museum, the historical museum there. I think you all have some papers or some documents I was able to find out. Uh, so I did do some phone research even here. Uh, and I also went to her home, Huddick, Arkansas, um, and interviewed people who knew her and um, learned a lot about her childhood uh, from that. Um, so my mission in writing this book was not only to memorialize a civil rights leader, but to share in more detail who she is and why she became the person that she became. So at this point, I'm going to stop and show just a, a short piece of this film by my friend Sharon LaCruz. It's called The First Lady of Little Rock, and it's about Daisy Bates. And that'll be kind of an introduction to who Daisy Bates is or was. And I'll come back and talk some more. I was born Daisy Lee Gatson in the little sawmill town of Huddick in southern Arkansas. The owners of the Union Sawmill ruled the town like a sawmill plantation. Everyone got along as long as blacks stayed in their place and followed the strict rules of segregation. When I got old enough, my mother sent me in a white section of town. And they had babysitting for them. And I never liked it because it was always, and you do this, and you do the other. Oh, that was cruel. But we accepted it. We didn't have nothing else. We couldn't do anything else but accept it. 
and this was a long time ago, because you know I'm 91 years old, and I still remember it. And in my heart, I still hate it. In her autobiography, Daisy recalled her first encounter with racism. The butcher at the general store told her that niggers had to wait until the whites were served. Then he handed her a pound of fatty meat and told her to get out. At home, Daisy begged her father to confront the butcher. But a black man couldn't challenge a white man in southern Arkansas. It was the first time Daisy saw tears in her father's eyes. The new school year brought even more hard lessons. Nothing had changed. We had the same worn out textbooks handed down to us from the white school. With the first frost, the teacher wrestled with the pot-bellied stove. Whenever I see one of those stoves, I have an almost uncontrollable urge to smash it with an axe. <coughs> Despite the hardships, Daisy lived a relatively sheltered life. Her mother was a strict Christian. Her father was a mill worker who enjoyed gambling. He encouraged Daisy's fiery spirit. But I learned that in a small town like Huddy, there were secrets that Daisy's parents couldn't keep from their spoiled only child. Shortly after my eighth birthday, I was playing when a boy said, if you knew what happened to your mother, you wouldn't act so stuck up. I said, nothing is wrong with my mother. I just left her. He said, I'm talking about your real mother.
She didn't have well-being, and she didn't have security. And that's a terrible place to come from. So that gives you some idea of what Daisy's background was like, what her childhood was like. She had a tragic childhood. And most people would say, okay, she was an orphan, and um, her father gave her away after her mother was murdered, and nobody would expect very much out of a child with that kind of tragic childhood. But there's the other side of that, of people who are challenged by their childhood or challenged by their backgrounds and want something because of the things that they had to go through. So that's the Daisy that I knew, um, that I knew. That is the woman that came from a child that very few people expected very much of. So my mission in writing this book was to memorialize not only the Daisy Bates that many of us know, but the Daisy Bates, the child that experienced some of the tragic um, early childhood happenings. I wanted to research how they came to be, how she came to be, who she was. While it is hard to imagine, but in 1951, when Daisy and Elsie Bates opened their small weekly newspaper in Little Rock, they were doing something that for many decades after slavery, was life-threatening. Daisy was in her 20s, and Elsie was in his 30s at the time when they opened a newspaper in Little Rock. At that time, there was still lynchings going on. It was extremely segregated. I mean, society was two-tier. So it took courage to open up a newspaper to tell about all the racist and unfair and unjust things that were going on in the state and in the country. But that's what they did. So it was life-threatening. But they dared to speak out against the white establishment, the status quo, and the accepted institutions of segregation. And while they weren't the only people doing this, again, Arkansas and the South were extremely racist and harsh on people who spoke out, who dared speak out. While it was Elsie and Daisy's courage and unbending passion for justice that propelled them to fight against the status quo, it was also their natural instincts that made them anticipate that the timing was right for change. They were also propelled by their past. They were both natives of the Deep South. She was born in Huddock, and he was born in Sunflower, Mississippi. And like other black Southerners, their past would remain a constant reminder of what was wrong with their worlds. They would bring into their struggles all the experiences of social oppression. While L.C. Bates was prompted by doting parents Daisy's tragic childhood, which included the rape and murder of her mother and her father leaving her on the doorstep of a friend, was never expected to rise to very much. Daisy was naturally intelligent, precocious, and inquisitive. 
She did well in school and went as far as most black girls did at that time. She graduated from grammar school, the town's only colored grammar school. Elsie Bates attended one of the few black preparatory schools in the country before attending Wilberforce College in Ohio. So he was an educated black man. And there were expectations of a bright future for him. Daisy Gatson Bates has been described as an unlikely and unexpected civil rights leader. While nothing in this beautiful and petite young woman's past pointed to a future marked by leadership, in fact, her past would have pointed to just the opposite. But it was her past that marked her for leadership. It was her deep passion and justice and passion for justice and equality that would instruct the rest of her life. She was a history maker before the term was coined. She was a leader during the worst of times. What most people know about Daisy and Elsie Bates is their role in the 1957 Central High School crisis. Most of you heard about that, right? Okay. Um, So they played a pivotal role in that. Daisy was the face and the voice of the 1957 Central High Crisis. You heard about the Little Rock Nine, and then you would see Daisy Bates speaking out. Like the women she admired, such as Rosa Parks, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, and Ida B. Wells Barnett, Daisy was a courageous trailblazer. But few historians, not enough, include her in biographies. The fact that her first test in the civil rights arena was her instrumental role in the desegregation of the Little Rock City bus system. That was in 1956. And she did become the first woman president of an NAACP branch, a state branch. The question I love to research and study when I begin a book is who is this person? What were the seeds planted in their early lives that would germinate and produce a person such as this? And as you learn, she, she grew up in this very small town in southwest Arkansas, a lumber town. It was a company town. You've heard of company towns where the, com- the company owns everything, everything in it and to a great extent the people in it. Every black person she knew basically worked for that lumber mill. It was called the Union Mill. It was created in 1854. And unlike many other mill towns, Huddock was well-planned, well-appointed, boasted a full-stocked company, commissary where town residents bought their food and supplies. The streets were paved with the best of of South Arkansas's wood. There was running water, ice plant, electric lights. It even had a hotel, the commercial hotel. Daisy was born in 1914 to 17-year-old Hezekiah Gatson, whose mother, by the way, was, uh, was German, and 15-year-old Millie Riley. They fell in love, and they had Daisy. Their relationship, however, was said to have angered a spurned white suitor 
Allegedly, Millie was raped and killed by three white men, then thrown into what is called the 40 mill pond, which was used to transport lumber from one part of the state to another. So she grew up a foster child, and in fact, she remained so. She was never legally adopted by Ora Lee and Susie Smith. In one uh, piece of document I saw, she was still cited as a boarder, and she was about 12 years old at that time. She had lived with them for quite a while. So I suggest that it was because they always expected her father, Hezekiah Gatson, to return and reclaim his child, but he never did. He had left her on the doorsteps of the two people he believed would raise her right. And, I mean, you can see his side as well. The Times, the people that had reportedly killed Millie. He ran for his life. But the Smiths were a blessed choice for Daisy. They were good parents. Orlee doted on his foster daughter, and Susie, who was much stricter and sterner, taught her the Christian values that she would need in life. Daisy was a tomboy. She could beat every boy in town playing marbles. And her mother, at one point, after she'd won all the marbles from the boy, made her give them all back. Hers was a happy childhood to a certain extent until she was confronted with the realities of life, that she was black in a community that saw blacks as second-class citizens. And then she learned the other truth of her life, that her foster mother was not her real mother, and the uh, reality of what happened to her real mother. Those, so these two things really together were the tragedies that almost destroyed Daisy, her childhood. Um, there was little difference between her and other blacks except for those, that one thing. So it was during her early childhood that Daisy learned the reality of discrimination from the town butcher, as you saw, as well as from her friends who told her the truth about what happened to her mother. So she would eventually learn the truth of her heritage, that she was an orphan left by her father, and she would learn the community's accepted truth that she was not wanted by her parents. She wrote in her memoir, and she has a memoir, Long, uh, Long Shadow Over Little Rock, in case anyone is interested. Uh, she wrote it in 1962, after the 1957 Central High Crisis. She wrote that the truth resulted in a year-long spell of hatred and bitterness that would spiral out of control to the point that she regularly prayed for the death of a white man she believed might have been her mother's murderer. So Daisy was for a time unforgiving and failed to understand her foster parents' complicity in the deep and rampant racism. It was during her early teenage years that she began to relinquish her hatred as her foster father lay dying of cancer. She promised him 
She would purge herself of the hate and bitterness, and she would eventually replace that hate with a passion for love and racial conciliation. So instead of spending her life hating, she would spend the rest of her life working to even the playing field for all, transporting her hate and bitterness into a love for all people. What was the most pivotal times in her life? What some people believe was the most pivotal time in Daisy's life was in 1932, was 1930 actually, when she first met Elsie Bates. And there's a little murkiness to, to that history. The fact is she was only 15, basically, when she met Elsie Bates, and he was already 29 years old. Elsie had already been a journalist for many years by then. He had lost his job with the Kansas City Call and had moved back down south, and he had taken on a job as an insurance salesman. And one of his stops was Huddick, Arkansas. So he ended up at the Smith's home in Huddick, Arkansas. And that was the beginning of their life story. Uh, he came to sell insurance, and he ended up with the heart of a young Daisy Gatson. Two years later, after frequent visits to the home and a growing friendship with Aura Smith, Daisy and Elsie ended up going to a movie house. Huddick actually had a movie house at that time. So they ended up going to the movie house, and she, she wrote that that was when they fell in love. The question is whether Daisy's foster parents approved of this relationship between this much older man and their child. Um, no one knows for sure. But shortly after Oral Smith dies in 1932, Daisy moves away to Memphis. That is where Elsie lives with his family and children. So she lives there for 10 years um, in Memphis. And 10 years after that, Daisy and Elsie moves to Little Rock and opens the Arkansas State Press. So even the greatest of us have a few <laughs> things in our closet. Elsie <laughs> um, had always wanted to own his own newspaper. He was a great writer. He was a wonderful newspaper man. So that's something he had always wanted to do. And with Daisy, he was able to do it. Together, they were able to do it. Um, and together, they created a new page in Arkansas history, uh, beginning with the establishment of the Arkansas State Press newspaper, which filled an, a civil rights niche for Arkansas. But there were many firsts for Daisy Bates during her 84 years on earth. She died in 1999. Um, she was one of the few women in Arkansas to gain her flying license. Uh, she was the only woman to actually speak at the March on Washington in 1963. There were other plans, but she was the only one who ended up speaking. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at the old program, I'm sure you guys have it here somewhere, the original 1963 March on Washington, there were no women on the program at all. But um, they did change it at the last minute, and they had asked um, um, Josephine Baker to speak, and she was not able to speak. Uh, so Daisy Bates did speak, and on the film, you can see that she's speaking. Um, so she was the only woman to speak at the 1963 March on Washington. 
She was one of the first women, one of the few women to serve as newspaper publishers. And as I said, she was the first female to serve as the state director of the NAACP. Um, Though she never received a formal degree, she received a number of honorary degrees uh, throughout her life. Um, And many of them was based on her work, her courageous work uh, with the newspaper and her courageous work with the 1957 Central High Crisis, which I have, you know, I, I talk about it a lot. I think her and Elsie's role in that whole 1957 Central High Crisis changed them dramatically, and some for the better, but also I think they sacrificed a great deal uh, in taking that stand, as I think a, a lot of leaders do. Uh, Thanks to Elsie and Daisy Bates' unflinching reporting of the truth that no one wanted to hear, the Arkansas State Press was recognized for its fearless reporting on the need for social and economic improvements for black Arkansans and became known for its fearless reporting of acts of police brutality. Um, The Bates' insistence on publicizing such information led many white business owners to cease placing ads in their paper. So, in 1959, they finally had to close their newspaper down. Daisy and Elsie did not have children of their own. They adopted um, one young man who was uh, developmentally uh, special, and they kept him as long as they could, But that was before the 1957 crisis, and when the 1957 crisis happened, there was just too, it was just too stressful, and they took him back. Uh, They also uh, adopted one of L.C.'s daughters. Um, She wasn't, she wasn't a child, a little child, but they adopted her as well. So, but they never had children of their own, and I really think that they considered the newspaper their baby. They nurtured that newspaper from you know, from founding it, and just really that was their life. It connected them. So when the newspaper ended, that was another thing I think that helped um, kind of uh, change their lives to a great extent. It was to a great extent because of her role as a public figure and a supporter of the National Association of the Advancement of Colored People that Daisy Bates was elected, selected in 1952 to serve as president of the local NAACP. Daisy Gatson Bates never saw a fight that she wouldn't enter if it meant righting wrongs for the powerless. After the U.S. Supreme Court deemed segregation unconstitutional in 1954, she became the voice and the face behind the NAAC's protest against the Little Rock School Board for their slow integration of the public schools. So it was no surprise in 1957 that it was Daisy Bates who took up the fight against our good governor, Orville Faubus. You guys heard of Orville Faubus? And the Little Rock School District's effort to water down the Supreme Court's integration law. Because of her courageous stance, her role catapulted in Arkansas and throughout the state, including her role as spokesperson and mentor to the Little Rock Nine. But, 
as I was saying in a roundabout way, Daisy and Elsie Bates were punished for their courage and for the positions they took through their newspaper. She became a lightning rod for segregationists, not only within the state, but from around the country. News reporters and photographers from every major newspaper outlet in the country followed her every move. She became an overnight celebrity as they recorded each instance when the children, the Little Rock Nine, were refused admission into Central High School. The NAACP's attempt to integrate the Arkansas's most well-regarded high school brought out the worst in white Arkansans. They voiced their opposition through intimidation, anti-desegregation rallies, overt threats, and acts of violence. At the Wisconsin Historical Society, Daisy Bates' collection, which covers her life from 1946 to 1966, there are reams of letters both condemning and congratulating Daisy for her role in the integration effort. What many who know about the crisis, 1957 crisis, do not know is that Daisy, and Elsie to a smaller extent, was deluged with outpourings of contempt for her position on integration. Not just during, the, during 1957, but for three years before and after the integration crisis. There are twice as many letters, which is surprising to me. There are twice as many letters, hate letters, from women as there are from men. There were unbelievable letters of hate and resentment from all over the country. You would think just maybe the South. They came from every state. Amazing numbers of ministers, lawyers, educated people. Letters from L.A., Detroit, Chicago, New York, belying the myth that things are always better in the North. Many letters reiterated the claim that Negroes are pawns of the communists and Jews. One Texan reminded Daisy and L.C. that in 1919 in Houston, whites killed blacks down a three-mile stretch just for being smarties. A Miami, Florida writer asked why, since the children had won the fight to attend Central, would they not withdraw to end the agitation? She went on to say that Daisy and the Nine were the cause of all the trouble. Many writers questioned black pride in that, that they would try to push themselves on a school that didn't want them. One anonymous writer from Salinas, California, wrote, For a half-nigger wench, you sure caused a lot of commotion. Why don't you go up north if conditions in the south don't suit you? My guess is that 90% of colored people in the south like it like it is. Better yet, why don't you go to Russia and take Satchmo, Eartha, Marshall, and Powell with you? They will give you equality there, I understand. Mrs. O.W.L.Z. of Sarepta, Louisiana, sent on October 10, 1957, a list of six questions to Daisy Bates, questioning her patriotism, 
her pride in her race, her reasoning in taking five superior students from the black school and putting them in the white schools, and finally, whether she realized she was being used by the Communist Party. One letter said, Negro woman Bates, I would be ashamed of Arkansas if I did not know that you have lovely Negro high schools. She ends by saying she would never donate another penny to the NAACP. Ironically, many of the letters written about her efforts to ensure equal education for blacks were written by white men and women with limited schooling. Poems spewing hate, clippings of terrible atrocities, sent as threats to Daisy's own life, and most surprisingly, letters written by obviously very educated and accomplished white men and women questioning whether Dave, why Daisy would work so hard to change the comfortable racial status quo. Daisy was the NAACP leader at this time. In addition to the troughs of hate mail she got, she also got letters from people around the state who were complaining about things that were going on in the states. People throughout the, the Arkansas Delta, sharecroppers, um, people coming home from the war that were being treated terribly after serving in the war. So she got those as well. It wasn't until September 25th, 1957, after President Eisenhower ordered 1,000 paratroopers to enforce integration of the school that the students were actually escorted safely into the school. The struggle, however, was far from over. After the closing of Little Rock schools, Daisy and Elsie continued to be advocates for the students and for fair and just treatment for all. Like every story of great heroes and sacrifices, it is also shrouded with tragedy. Daisy and Elsie Bates lost their beloved Arkansas State Press due to to white advertisers pulling their ads. And while Daisy would continue to enjoy great success, she worked for the Democratic National Committee and the voter education drive during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. Both hers and Elsie's health deteriorated rapidly after the 57 crisis. Elsie was appointed as field director for the NAACP, and he held that job for 10 years before retiring. After suffering a stroke in 1965, Daisy returned to her Arkansas full-time, and in 1968 began working for a community revitalization revitalization project in Mitchellville, Arkansas. Elsie died in 1980, and in 1984, Daisy kept a promise to him to resurrect resurrect the Arkansas State Press. In many ways, even with its sense of horror and excitement, the 1957 Central High Crisis was the crest and the crescendo of actions and activities that fueled Daisy's actions over the next few years. While there comes a time in the midst of the 57 crisis 
that she questions that role and the sanity of it all. More often, she accepts with fortitude and conviction that this was the role laid out for her. The two-year conflict for those looking on from the outside and a much longer 10-year war for those intimately involved. For Daisy Gatson Bates, this war had been going on for a lifetime, beginning at Millwood Pond, where her mother died at the hands of whites and her death was never avenged. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> yeah, I, I, Ms. Kearney, I'd really like to thank you for the uh, information about Ms. Bates, uh, such an unsung hero. I had heard some, I had seen a lot of the, the footage on the, on the news and on, I think, a PBS special mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. her. And I was amazed then, but I'm truly amazed now, getting such information about her Thank life you. and such strength. I mean, you wonder how a person can survive such pressure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, also, I'd like to thank you. Uh, in in what, 2006, when you wrote your book on Clinton, mm -hmm. you were kind enough to call into my book club, and we had a wonderful conversation about your book. It was and a I, great conversation. Yeah, I remember. It was, it was, they're still talking about it. <laughs> and I just want to thank you for that, too. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for coming out. Anyone else has questions? It doesn't have to be about this book. I mean, I didn't talk much about my other life, um, but... Uh, you can ask any questions, really. Yes, he was. He was. I think he was both physically and and uh, kind of mentally disabled. But they loved him a lot. Yes. I think they want you to go to the mic because it helps them. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. First of all, when I saw the title of the book, can you hear me? Mm -hmm. uh, um, between a rock and a hard place, that caught my attention right okay. there. So I said, let me come out and see what this is <laughs> all about. And, Great. Uh, so how did you come about choosing that title for your book? Good question. Um, I think it pretty much represents Daisy's life. I think she lived from her childhood on kind of between, she had a heart life. And she was fighting against, not just against white supremacy or white segregation. She was also fighting against our status quo as a woman, as a strong black woman who speaks out. Uh, so she was fighting against people in the own community who didn't see her as a real leader, uh, who felt like someone else should have been that NAAC president. Uh, so I think 
even from the beginning, she had been in between a rock and a hard place from her childhood on, from the tragedies that she experienced uh, on until she became an adult. And many people saw her as a leader and other people said that she does not deserve this leadership. So that's kind of the way I looked at it. Any um, more books for the future? Oh, yeah. I'm I'm constantly writing. Um, my new book is going to be about my father. Uh, actually, it's coming out later this month. It's uh, called Sundays with TJ. My father passed in December at 107 years old, and he lived an amazing life. He We were sharecroppers from Arkansas. They had 19 children. 18 of us went to college and graduated. Uh, all of us... Um, kind of ended up doing what we wanted to in life. And we credit our parents' uh, amazing wisdom and their dependence on their faith, using their faith and their wisdom together to create a a success. And, you know, success is how we look at it, but a successful family. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Come on, Henry. (laughs) as you were doing the research and finding all this information on daisy bates how did it affect you wow that's a good question it it was just like i'm i was re getting reintroduced to her. I always wanted to be a lot like her. In some ways, I couldn't have been her because nobody could walk in her footsteps. But um, there was a lot of things that she overcame that I didn't have to overcome. And it gave me inspiration. It gave me inspiration to just never give up, to keep pushing at whatever it is I want to do. She worked against so many odds in her life, and uh, there were so many people against her. And I learned that there were even more people maybe in our own community that was against her than I knew. So I think it gave me a lot more inspiration, just learning. And she wasn't a perfect woman in any way. And I appreciated that, too, because none of us are perfect. But she was able to do a lot of good in spite of that. What surprised you most about her? I get that question a lot (laughs) for some reason. Um, I guess what surprised me most was uh, the fact that she, she fell in love with a man that was married with children and she stayed in that relationship, you know, until they die. Basically they lived together forever. Um, She was completely um, committed to that relationship and she was such an independent, strong, independent woman. But I think they really were mirrors of each other. And I think they were each other's uh, strength. And as a young person, she must have already seen that and decided this is what I need in my life. Thanks again. <laughs> Thank you. You look like you have a question. <laughs> Do you have a question? Mm-hmm. Well, I have a comment. Oh, okay. Yeah. And you look familiar, too. Most people say that. Really? Okay, you've got one of those faces. Yeah. <laughs> what has always fascinated me about 
Brown versus Board of Education um, here locally is that we have a pretty famous ball player, Golden Glove ball player here by the name of Brooks Robinson, mm, mm-hmm. who actually graduated from Central High during that time, but you never, ever hear him speaking about the experiences there. Um, uh, what year? Do you know what year he graduated? I think he may have come out in 53, 54, or 55. Okay. But he is a graduate of Central High. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I followed his career, and he has never spoken about that era. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Very you know, interesting. Yeah. Well, when I hear Brooks Robinson, he's he's white? Yeah. Okay. When I hear most yeah, whites talk about that era, it's kind of mea culpa. It's kind of apologies because it was like a, a wave of hate, a wave of, of, of this can't happen to us. And we're going to make sure that it doesn't happen. And if you see the, you didn't see the whole film, but if you see the faces of those people, and I believe some of those people were some people that you probably would like if you didn't see this picture, because they were probably everyday people, but they got caught up in this hate mongering and just refusal to go to school, let their children go to school with a, a black child. Um, so I'm sure he experienced some of that. I don't, you know, you never know what his actual actions might have been during that time. Could have been something that he's not very proud of. So if he brought it up, someone may remember him. Uh, so I, I can understand him not bringing it up. But I'm glad you told me that because I'm going to now I'll research it. I'll look into it. It's amazing what you learn just talking. I think it's truly amazing what you did with the information that you collected from Daisy and you took that information and you started your well you uh, took over the newspaper yourself mm-hmm. and for a black woman to do that anyone mm-hmm. um, it's truly amazing and I'm very um, you know, I guess I can say I'm proud of you <laughs> oh, thank you, <laughs> it really is. It really is. Thank you. So I guess my question is, is that how did you come about I mean what was the um, foundation to actually come from one place to another mm-hmm. in order to incorporate yourself into purchasing that newspaper and then taking it as far as you could take it Okay, what happened with me was I grew up knowing that I was going to write. That was my love from very, very young. And uh, I've done lots of other things. I worked for state government for a number of years in Arkansas after college. I did uh, major in journalism. I would have majored in creative writing, something more closer to book writing, but they didn't have a creative writing program. So I majored in journalism. So it all tied together when I went to work for Daisy Bates. By 1987, I had worked for state government for nine years and decided that wasn't really what I needed to be doing. I needed to be doing something closer to my heart. 
And at that very same time, as life happens, especially for me throughout my many, many years, um, I learned that she had had a position open for a managing editor. And I went and interviewed with her and said, Really, you're supposed to hire me this time because the other time you didn't. So <laughs> she hired me, and I was her managing editor, and I love that role. But like I said, she came in one day and said, I'm retiring. And uh, I was pretty much distraught. Um, but I went home and prayed and thought about it for a long time and talked to my husband about it and came back and asked her, would she sell it to me? on time because I didn't have the money to pay for it but I could pay her over time and and she did she did she trusted me that much uh that I purchased it it was hard work I tell people it was harder than chopping cotton uh running a small newspaper is hard work but if you really want to do it and you want to do it right you do it and you work really hard and I slept at the newspaper many nights to make sure the newspaper got out and I changed, you know, I made some changes. I brought people in and, and it, it had become a part of my life. It was really a, a deep part of my life when I was asked to go to the White House. I, that's when I left the newspaper to go to the White House in 1993. So that's kind of how my life has been. It's like God has put something in my way and, you know, uh, and it's like I prepared myself in a way for that next step, but I didn't know I was preparing myself. Well, if there's no other questions, we have books in the back for you to purchase, and she will be signing books here in the front. So, again, thank you. <laughs> thank you.